This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we are bringing you the very best of book talk. We are coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at pubweeklyradio, that's pub. WKLY Radio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Suzanne Corkin. She's the author of the fascinating new medical biography, Permanent Present Tense. Then PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey will tell us what's coming up this weekend at Book Expo America, the biggest American book show of the year. But first, let's take a look at some of the books that are coming out in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so we have some. So, so this next week, uh, these 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 next couple of weeks, uh, BEA and into um, June are going to be pretty pretty fun. We've got one coming out. It's only rock and roll. Thirty years married to a Rolling Stone. That's by Joe Wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's coming out by It Books, and uh, this one is going to be. Uh, it's, they're announcing a fifty thousand print run. Uh, it's going to be talking about you know, like an insider scoop of uh, the Rolling Stones, as told by the. Uh, by, by Joe Wood. Uh, we also have Brotherhood Dharma, Destiny, and the American Dream. This is by Deepak and Sanjeev Chopra. We all know Deepak Chopra. Sure. Uh, and his brother, also a physician. This is coming out by Amazon New Harvest. And this one is is, is a memoir uh, written by the two of their uh, upbringing in India and they're moving around with their family and basically how they came to the United States and how they chose their professions. And uh, with, with uh, Deepak's readership, uh, his appearances on, on, uh, on news and TV programs, mm-hmm. I think this is going to make a hit with, with a lot of readers. Sure. Um, and let's see what else I have. We have, and this is something I'd mentioned last week, but I'm going to mention it again uh, uh, coming out, and the mountains echoed by Khaled Hosseini. Uh, they're announcing a 1.5 million uh, printing. So this is going to be a big book uh, we're going to be seeing in the next couple of weeks. Um, He's the author of The Kite Runner, right. and, and he's another author who, who seems to get uh, bigger with, 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 each, which, with each of his novels. Uh, so, so we're going to be hearing about that, and um, I, I think there's a couple of others right here. Uh, Control-Alt-Delete. Uh, this is for uh, those of you in business. Reboot your business. Reboot your life. Your future depends on it. Uh, this is coming out by Grand Central Publishing. It's by Mitch Joel. And this is kind of a self-help for your personal and business life uh, with 75,000 copies coming out. And and this is something that, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, you kind of do want to just control, alt, delete. And let's, let's just start over just a little bit. I've seen a lot of these self-help books that conflate the business and the personal. They, yes. I, I think we tend to forget just how many people own and run businesses. Uh, sure. You know, we, we hear a lot about big conglomerates, but it's easy to overlook really millions and millions of folks for whom the, their business lives and their personal lives are very deeply so entwined. Yeah, so true. And, and, and you're right. Uh, these, these self-help books that are coming out conflating uh, uh, business and personal life. And before it was a lot of books on, that had sports metaphors. You sure. Know? So you had, mm-hmm. you know, you know, coaching your, you know, coaching your, you know, how to coach, how to be your own coach or, or whatever the case may be. And mm-hmm. here, I, I think since everyone, uh, can consider themselves a, a budding entrepreneur even more easily than before with the internet and with starting businesses without a uh, brick and mortar, as it were, right. uh, kind of place. Uh, I, I think people are starting to, to look to that and see how it, they can you know, integrate it into their own lives. So, uh, so we have a couple of other books here. Let me see. Um, uh, we have the Southern League, a true story of baseball, civil rights, and the Deep South's most compelling pennant race by Larry Colton. This is another Grand Central uh, publishing book, and uh, you know this is the, the this is the time when uh, books are coming out. Right, uh, 
beginning, you know, beginning of summer, right? Uh, when baseball is going to be reaching its pinnacle, and there's never a shortage of baseball books. Of and, course. Uh, there's been in the past two or three years, even maybe two or three years, there's been uh, more and more books looking at the civil rights and uh, and the sport uh, in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, another book, uh, just when you think you've heard the last of uh, Mario Batali, you have his sons, Ben oh, yes, and Leo right. coming his, out he, and their own Mario, their own Batali cookbook. I have seen the cover of this book and it is adorable. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, is yeah, adorable. Sure. It's just these two kids going, look at us. We right. are chefs. Yeah, we are chefs. Never doubt us. Exactly. <laughs> so that's going to be coming out. I really don't know how that well that's going to do. but um, So cute. But it'll be fun for them, I'm sure. Um, and, and that's kind of what I have for nonfiction right now. Uh, I don't know if you have anything uh, anything you're looking forward to in the coming weeks in fiction. I definitely do. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking about some hot books that are just out and some that are coming out. Um, Coming out on May 30th uh, is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. Uh, Karen Joy Fowler is a really interesting phenomenon literarily uh, she's the author of the jane austen book club which of course is made into a movie uh, and and oh, is sure. one of those yeah. really unusual books uh, if you ever read it it is written in the first person plural it is written the narration is from the point of view of we it is is the the we the us um, the the members of the town where it takes place. And, it reminds me of uh, Jeffrey Eugenides' Virgin Suicides, which hmm. was third person plural as well. And uh, and that, that's that's definitely an unusual choice. She makes a lot of stylistically adventurous choices. But I grew up knowing her as a science fiction author for her books, uh, like her first book, Sarah Canary, is often regarded as a science fiction classic. And so it's interesting to see how well she's done for herself in the literary world. Um, this is coming out from Putnam as a, a mainstream press, and she's a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and she's got you know, amazing blurbs from uh, people yeah. like uh, Kelly Link and Mary Doria Russell, who uh, are, again, well-known in the science fiction field, but also Alice Siebold and Ruth Ozeki. Wow. So she, she definitely has broad appeal. And this is a family novel. We are all completely beside ourselves. And it's uh, about a family where uh, there, there are three siblings uh, one of whom is so traumatized that she never speaks. Mm. Uh, one of whom is a fugitive who's wanted by the FBI for domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, uh, the the jacket blur, but I'm not going to spoil anything, mm-hmm. says uh, hers is a far more terrible fate than the family in their innocence could ever have imagined. So now this is starting to sound like a horror novel or a thriller. Right. It's it's a really interesting mix of of components, and I think it's going to make a splash. Fowler's really just an incredible writer, and it'll be very interesting to see where she goes with this. And the cover looks great. We're looking at it right now. It's Mm -hmm. yellow with uh, like a, a, it's a dark, almost Rorschach kind of, tree on the cover mm-hmm. um and a monkey hanging from the tree and a monkey that's what that is hanging from the tree is. and uh the title of, of course again is we are all completely beside ourselves so i'm definitely uh, looking forward to this and and it's uh yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be an an, an interesting mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some some crude aspects, uh, some some very earthy language, and a lot of that sort of gritty realism. But she always somehow manages to elevate it a little and and make it that much deeper and more interesting. Wow, sounds wonderful. And of course, we do have uh, a few. Uh, you know, well-known names are going to be appearing on the list. Dean Koontz, Clive Custler. Sure. Uh, so we'll, they'll be making appearances, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, you know, in some ways, once you've read uh, one Dean Koontz novel, you know whether you like him or you don't. Uh, but I, I was a fan of Dean Koontz many, many, many years mm-hmm. ago. And uh, it's kind of great that he's still turning them out. Uh, so this one is, is Deeply Odd, which is coming out or is out May 28th. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, that's that's a great title. Yeah, actually, deeply odd. Right. Um, it's it's not what you would expect from a kind of mysterious 
like a, a thriller title or a suspense title, uh, which is what I tend to think of him right. doing. So now having seen that, I'm sort of curious. I might sure. want to investigate it some more. Great. And uh, Clive Cussler is uh, co-authoring Zero Hour with Graham Brown. Uh, Cussler is like an industry all by himself, and that's that's why he gets these younger co-authors in. I, I suspect he just sort of sketches out the plot and lets them right. paint in the details. Right. Right. But that can be a really interesting way for an author to get their start. Mm-hmm. And uh, you never know, we might see Graham Brown's name on his own book covers in a few years and uh, he can he can use this you know i worked with clive cussler and i co-wrote these best-selling sure. books and kind of use that to to launch his own career right i think we've seen that with uh, authors who've co-written books with uh, patterson for, mm-hmm. for example yep. so they, they go on to to have their own writing careers at least that's the theory it doesn't always work out that way no exactly, exactly. There's, there's no guarantees right. in publishing right. exactly i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio Next up, Suzanne Corkin is going to tell us about a man who lived in the moment because he'd lost his ability to form memories. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Suzanne Corkin on the line. She's a professor of neuroscience emerita at MIT, and her new book, Permanent Present Tense tells the story of a man who suffered from amnesia for 55 years. Thanks so much for joining us, Suzanne. My pleasure. So your book tells the story of a 27-year-old man who, in 1953, underwent a lobotomy for epilepsy and came out of the surgery unable to form new memories. How how did you get to know this man, Uh, Henry Gustave Molaison? Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, Henry Mollison. Mullison. Just the way he pronounced it. Ah, okay. And so how did you get to know this man? I know you were, uh, he was the patient of yours. And what led you to write the book about him? Well, the way I met him uh, was in graduate school. I was a graduate student at McGill University, working in Brenda Milner's laboratory at the Montreal Neurological Institute. Uh, Brenda Milner was the one who initially tested HM a, a couple of years after his operation, and together with Scoville, the surgeon, William Beecher Scoville, uh, published a groundbreaking paper that revolutionized the science of memory. Um, basically, they showed that taking out the inner part of both temporal lobes mm. caused amnesia. Mm. I was uh, 25 then, and he was 36 uh, in 1962. I studied him for the next 46 years, actually mm. until 2008 when he died. Uh, in 1992... He donated his brain after he died to MIT and Mass General Hospital. So we performed an autopsy uh, the day after he died, and we have his brain. And so he will continue making contributions to science for many years. That's incredible. So, you know, what what was his daily life like if he wasn't really able to form new new short-term memories? Uh He was completely dependent. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the entire rest of his life. Initially, after his operation, he went home uh, to live with his mother and father. And after a few years, his father died. His mother continued to take care of him alone. Uh, But after a while, she became old and was becoming demented. So the two of them moved in with a distant relative. She took care of them for about five years. Now, at her house... um, she really got Henry into a routine, which was very good for him. You know, he would get up at a certain time, he would have his breakfast, he would get dressed, and then on weekdays she would take him to which, what they call school. It was a, a sheltered workshop for intellectually handicapped people. Mm-hmm. Then after school she would pick him up, he would come home, have a snack. Uh, if the weather was nice, he would sit out on the patio in back of the house and talk with other people who happened to be there. Um, and he, he read his magazines. He actually uh, was a member of the NRA and liked to read uh, gun magazines. Hmm. Wow. When he was growing up, he and his father had a gun collection. Uh, it, it was current, currently, current generation uh, guns, but also with a couple of old um, antique guns, and he he loved his gun collection, and that continued through his life after the operation. 
But I'm trying to imagine someone with with no memories, you know, say when when he had gotten older with no memories of, say, 30 years of of evolution of gun manufacturing, reading a present day magazine. And it must have felt like science fiction. <laughs> sort of a disconnect. Well, that's an interesting point, because he actually didn't uh, have these shocking moments. He just sort of accepted everything in his stride. A wonderful example is color television, because initially mm-hmm. he watched television in black and mm-hmm. white. And then at some point, you know, the programs began appearing in color, and then everything was in color. And he never, you know, commented on that. He never huh. said, gee, <laughs> where did all the color come from? Oh, wow. Well, this sounds a little bit like a movie called Fifty First Dates with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore uh-huh. uh, that that has come out where uh, she is remind she is uh, every morning she wakes up and she has no recollection of her history. She just wakes up and forms her you know, forms new memories for that day and then uh, uh-huh. uh, kind of loses them. Now, uh-huh. uh, w- but Henry with- couldn't form new memories even within a single day. Really. Uh, and- he- his memory lasted about 30 seconds. For all practical purposes, mm-hmm. he remembered virtually nothing. I mean, there are a few little striking examples of things that he remembered, which always shocked us. But right. for the most part, once, he, once he, he was distracted, it was completely erased. So if I said to him, Henry, I, I'm going to say some numbers, and I want you to repeat them back after me. And then I said, three Six nine eight five. He could say three six nine eight five. Then I went on and told him about my experience getting to the lab that day. In other words, distracting him. And I said, "What were those numbers?" He couldn't do it. Wow. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with neuroscience professor and author Suzanne Corkin about her book, Permanent Present Tense, about a, a young man, 27 years old, who in 1953 underwent a lobotomy for epilepsy and came out without being able to form new memories. Now, this, this surgery in 1953, a lobotomy for epilepsy, was this common? No, it wasn't at all. Actually, uh when you say lobotomy, people are probably thinking of frontal lobotomies. This was mm-hmm. not a frontal lobotomy. The frontal lobes are in the cortex in the front of your brain, right over your mm-hmm. eyes. This operation which was in the temporal lobes, which are right in back of the frontal lobes. And it mm-hmm. wasn't the entire temporal lobe. It was discrete areas in the inner part of the temporal lobe. Mm-hmm. And the surgeon actually renamed the procedure bilateral medial temporal resection but you said this wasn't a typical treatment for epilepsy at all no at the time. it wasn't so, so henry was the first person who had this operation for epilepsy the surgeon scoville had done this up varying uh forms of this operation um on a large number of schizophrenic women who were in state hospitals around the hartford area so he had experience with the surgical technique Mm-hmm. Um, what gave uh, a suggestion that perhaps this would help epilepsy were two of these patients that he had operated on. They were both psychotic, but they also had epilepsy. And Scoville, or whoever was caring for these patients, noted after the operation that their seizures were decreased in frequency. Hmm. So it, he thought, well, you know, maybe this will stop intractable epilepsy. And he tried it on Henry. Henry was the first person to have it for epilepsy, and it was not repeated as a I treatment of epilepsy. Right. right. And so how, how have treatments for these conditions for epilepsy and also treatments for amnesia changed in the past 60 years? I mean, there must have been tremendous advancements. Well, there's really no treatment for amnesia. Mm-hmm. You could give people strategies like carrying around a notebook in, in your pocket to write down things you want to remember or putting signs up all over the house like wash your hands, put the toilet seat down, etc., right. turn the television off at 10. But uh, operations for epilepsy are typically done on just one side of the brain. Mm-hmm. So it could be on the left temporal lobe or the right temporal lobe or the left frontal lobe or the right frontal lobe. What was different about Henry's operation was that it was on both sides. 
And one thing that surgeons learned from Henry's operation was that you can't remove these structures on the right and left side. Mm -hmm. And an offshoot of this knowledge was that if any surgeon wanted to remove these key memory structures on one side of a patient's brain, say the left, he had to be darn sure that the corresponding structures on the right were intact. Right. Because if the right side were damaged, then removing the memory area on the left would cause a bilateral lesion, mm-hmm. left and right, like Henry's, and amnesia would follow. So how did studying and treating um, or helping him to, to cope with his amnesia um, help with developing uh, treatments and approaches for other patients and help with the, the understanding of what memory is? Yeah. Um, well, I think one benefit to human, not just to other patients, but to humanity, was that he showed the world that you could be saddled with a tremendous handicap and still carry on with your life and make mm-hmm. a significant contribution to the world. He, he didn't complain, he didn't ask for pity, and he was always a willing and cooperative research participant. You know, he coped as best he could. He was resilient. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we learned a lot about memory from his case. Mm-hmm. His dedication to research basically brought about an epiphany in the science of memory. His case launched the modern era of memory research, and we can highlight three major scientific contributions. First of all, he was living proof that you can be an intelligent person and still have a horrible memory. Mm-hmm. His IQ was consistently above average all of the years that we studied him until the very end when he actually became demented, but that had nothing to do with this operation. Right. But um, this tells us that memory is processed by specialized brain circuits, that memory is compartmentalized. And the second big lesson uh, that he taught us is that the ability to form new memories is localized to a specific part of the brain. Mm -hmm. the inner part of the temporal lobes. Before Henry, we didn't understand that the hippocampus and the surrounding cortex are essential for the establishment of long-term memory. The third contribution was the discovery that there are different kinds of memory with different addresses in the brain. Brenda Milner, in 1962, provided the first evidence of this dissociation uh, by showing that Henry could learn a motor skill. And since then, thousands of researchers have fleshed out this idea of multiple memory circuits. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with neuroscience professor and author Suzanne Corkin about Henry Mollison, who was unable to form new memories for uh, over 50 years of his life. Um, How did he maintain a sense of personal identity without memory? I mean, obviously, you're talking, you've talked a bit about his personality, and it's it's interesting to think of him having this very consistent personality throughout his life, even without memories. Yes. No, his, it's important to note that I, his personality did not change after his operation. There was no indication from the doctor or his family that he had a personality change. So that was good. I mean, mm-hmm. he was still Henry in that sense. Um, but So what you're asking is, uh, did Henry Mollison have a sense of self? And that's a good mm-hmm. question because scholars ranging from philosophers to neuroscientists have argued that an individual who lacks the capacity to remember anything also lacks an identity. But uh, I will tell you that the answer is yes, he did have a sense of self, but it was less complete than ours. Mm-hmm. So our, our notion of self is a composite of our memories from the past, memories from the present, and our plans for the future. When we examine Henry's access to these t- three time periods, we find that it was patchy. Now, For the years before his operation, uh, that is 1926 to 1953, he had rich mental representations covering this period. He knew where he was born. He knew that his father's family came from Thibodeau, Louisiana. He talked about the towns around Hartford where he lived before his operation. The family moved around quite a lot. He knew where all these places were, and he knew the names of his neighbors. Mm-hmm. He wow. could tell us the schools he went to, some of his classmates' names, and in conversation he mentioned what he did for fun, 
roller skating, ice skating, banjo lessons, going to the beach. So overall, in spite of his epilepsy, he could remember the well-rounded life he experienced before his operation. Mm -hmm. However, (laughs) the quality of these preoperative memories was compromised in the following way. He lacked episodic autobiographical memories. What this means is that he could not tell you a unique event that happened at a specific time and place. Mm -hmm. He could not say, I remember at my ninth birthday party, I spilled chocolate ice cream all over myself and my mother was mad at me. Nothing. Mm -hmm. What he gave, Mm -hmm. what his preoperative memories consisted of, was the gist of things that he did. So we used to go roller skating at such and such a place. I took banjo lessons at such and such a studio. My friends in the neighborhood were X, Y, and Z, but no unique events. Wow. So that's his preoperative. That's so specific. Now, with respect to his memory for the years after his operation, it was destroyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he did have selective insights and little fragments of information about his situation. <clears throat> he had a sense of his identity. He was aware from the years before his operation that he had epilepsy, mm. and he maintained that mm-hmm. knowledge. And he knew he had had an operation on his head. That's what he used to say. He didn't say in his brain. He said on his head. He also had a feeling that the procedure had been tried on only a few people before him, and that during his operation, something had not gone quite right. So, in essence, he knew it was an experiment that didn't work. Mm-hmm. But above all, he knew, he knew that he did not remember things. He had very good insight. And he would fre- frequently say, I don't remember. You mm-hmm. see, I don't remember. So, because he could not record new information, his body image was outdated. Mm-hmm. He described himself as thin but heavy. And he was unaware that he had gray hair when he did have gray hair. He always underestimated his age by quite a few years Mm -hmm. and for a long time was unaware that his parents had died. So, you know, what he knew was definitely an incomplete picture. Now, when it came to the future, he was at a complete loss. Mm -hmm. He could not construct an agenda. He often stated, very often stated, that he wanted to be a brain surgeon, but he couldn't because he wore glasses. So that said, he did not have a plan B or C or D. Right. In high school, he'd taken the practical course as opposed to the business course or the college course, and he had actually held several different jobs before his operation, but still he did not have future plans. Right. When I asked him what he would do tomorrow, he said, whatever is beneficial, full oh. stop. Wow. He could not create a future and was never able to chase his dreams because he didn't have any. Now, the the the, the surgery he went for epilepsy did did, did he? Uh, how bad was his epilepsy first? And secondly, uh-huh. was was the epilepsy cured by this? Was he still yeah, that, epileptic? Two good questions. Um, his epilepsy was very bad. He had first of all, he had what we call petit mal attacks. These little absence seizures mm-hmm. where it would look like he was daydreaming for about thirty seconds, and then he would come back and resume whatever he had been doing before. Those started when he was ten years old. Mm-hmm. On his fifteenth birthday, he had his first generalized convuls- convulsion, his first grand mal seizure. You know, on the floor, shaking, mm-hmm. frothing at the mouth, incontinence, etc. He continued to have those, and they became more frequent as time went on uh, through high school, mm-hmm. for example, and then and after high school. He was, there were anticonvulsant medications then, uh, and he was taking very, very, very high doses. Like he might have three epilepsy drugs, each one at the maximum dose. Wow. And so he was very highly medicated, heavily medicated. And that was the reason, you know, his his life was on hold. That was the reason, um, I'm sure, why the surgeon proposed the operation and why Henry and his parents agreed to it. It was, you know, it was like the last chance. Now, in to answer your second question, uh, the seizures were greatly reduced in frequency. There were some years when he didn't have any, mm. and other years he might have a couple. 
uh, but he con- had to continue taking anticonvulsant medication for the rest of his life. Mm. So it, it was he wasn't really home free. But in terms of the seizures, he was better. I mean, the question is, is, is this a, a, an acceptable price to pay for reducing seizures? I think most people would say no. Yes, I imagine so. Yeah. And you were one of his doctors, and you treated him and studied him for, for decades. So when you were writing this book, Permanent Present Tense, how did you balance sort of the scientific and analytical with the personal? First of all, let me tell you that I'm not a physician, so right. I actually did not treat any of his medical conditions. Okay. Uh, he came to MIT, to the MIT Clinical Research Center, 50 times over many years, and we had physicians there specializing in different uh, kinds of medical conditions, and they treated him. Um, so my my work was exclusively research. Mm. Um, and, you know, over the years, uh, Henry and I became friends. We had a lot in common. Uh, he grew up in the Hartford area, and so did I. My mother went to the same high school that he did, not at the same time. Uh, my father lived on the street where Henry and his mother moved to when they moved in with a distant relative. Uh, and so I was familiar with many of the landmarks that he would talk about when we were chatting about various things. So, you know, we were sort of, um, we were both Connecticut Yankees right. <laughs> uh, sure. working together. And I felt sorry for him, um, of course. You know, he got a raw deal. And I always tried to sort of oversee his medical care, um, not administer care to him, but make sure that they got the blood levels of his medications, that he was within the therapeutic range, and if he had a problem, you know, to make sure that it was taken care of, like he had cataract surgery. Or uh, one time when he was at MIT, uh, we noticed a little black spot on his ear. And so one afternoon, a nurse took him down to Mount Auburn Hospital, and uh, they removed his basal cell carcinoma, and he came back a little later with a little bandage on his ear, and he was fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we really, it, not just I, but everybody uh, in my lab uh, really were cared for Henry. He, he, was, he was our friend. He actually created a special name for me, which is mm-hmm. quite touching. It's Doctress. Oh, wow. When I said to him, you know, what do I do? He would say, Doctress. Oh, it's a wonderful story. We've been talking with Suzanne Corkin. You can find Permanent Present Tense, The Unforgettable Life of the Amnesic Patient, HM, and stores right now. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. It was very nice talking with you. It was lovely talking with you, too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey will give us a preview of the upcoming Book Expo America, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today co-editorial director Michael Coffey is here to give us a preview of the upcoming Book Expo America. I believe this is the biggest book show in the United States. So thank you very much for joining us, Michael. Thank you, and I'm pleased to be here. Always nice to, to have you in the studio with us and give you a break from your your busy life. So tell us a little bit about BEA, Book Expo America. What, what is it? What's it like? Well, it's happening this year from May 29th to June 1st. It's mm-hmm. a four-day show. Uh, it's been called the BEA for about eight or nine years. Um, since the early 40s, when it was begun, it was known as the ABA, the American Booksellers Association Convention. It's a uh, trade show that was built around annual meetings of the Association of American Booksellers which I think began in around 1900. Wow. And for many, many years, it was strictly a trade show. Mm-hmm. It was booksellers, editors, and a few librarians meeting to look at uh, the season's new books or upcoming books while booksellers had their annual membership meetings and uh, educational uh, seminars and such. And it moved from city to city year after year, but it has settled in New York for the last several years mm-hmm. and uh, seems to be here for quite some time. Right. Although I think um, 
Los Angeles or Chicago is going to get us in a few years. I'm not sure which. Yeah, I remember. I, I mean, I, I've been doing this for nearly 15 years. And, and Michael, if you don't mind my saying, you've been doing it a little bit longer than I have. So we've traveled to Chicago, to L.A., to D.C. And, and of course, we, we put out the show Daily, uh, which is the, the newspaper there, uh, uh, Daily um, tabloid talking about the uh, various events, uh, the panels, the guest speakers. And we've been doing that for, for quite a, quite a long time. About 10 or 12 years okay. now. Right. And there certainly is a lot going on there and there's a yeah. lot to cover. I mean, yeah. uh, to produce three daily newspapers about a trade show is uh, fairly unprecedented, I think. Yeah, um, sure. They are, <laughs> they are, they are large hundred page issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, the show now has really evolved. Um, in the last uh, four or five years mm-hmm. into something much more than a trade show. Um, I think as recently as 2009, uh, one of the, uh, the pundits of the publishing world, Mike Shatskin, mm-hmm. predicted that the BEA was doomed, that it had mm-hmm. three or four years to go, and he was willing to kind of take bets on it. <laughs> um, I think you know, he was seeing things at that point from a collapsing global economy and an, a publishing industry, like many, that were being assaulted by the sort of digital revolution, and no one really knew which way was up or was going to be up. Mm-hmm. But what has happened since is that the show has really expanded, and it's a much uh, kind of bigger uh, ecosystem now. Uh, it is no longer simply a trade show with um, just booksellers and editors and librarians. Um, this year, there will be a blogger's convention. Mm-hmm. There's a digital book world convention of people involved in the technology of doing electronic books. Right. There is a self-publishers convention called UPUBU, which is, um, you know, all these, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands of people now publishing books on their own, and they want to know more about how to do it and how to sell their books and get them to a reader. Mm-hmm. And finally, the last component that I think that's added that really makes this a complete ecosystem now is the consumers are right. coming to a trade show. Um, all day Saturday, uh, there will be, I think, around 2,000 consumers coming into this trade show that has been going on already for three days with all the um, publishers' booths still up, with many, many authors being present. Mm. Um, the publishers have done a wonderful job of really, I think, catering to this uh, wonderful new development where right. um, it becomes much more of a, a public and uh, you know, a consumer-oriented show. And as we all know, basically, it's the consumer that drives the entire uh, publishing world. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we don't get to them, um, we don't get anywhere. Sure. And nowadays, of course, there are more and more ways to get to that consumer. It's not right. only libraries and bookstores, but um, electronically and you know, uh, in the cloud and all kinds of other ways. Right. So I'm looking forward to this being a very, very vibrant show and one that... Um, uh, will continue to grow as, as it has uh, of recent in recent years. Right. Um, so it's it's going to be exciting and I, and I think once you draw consumers in it really motivates publishers to bring in uh, more and more authors there are 700 authors who are going to be at this show. Wow. That's amazing. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey about Book Expo America. The show that, uh, in ways, I, I think sets the tone for book publishing for the season. I mean, here's where you have a lot of authors uh, being presented by their publishers and publishers talking about uh, what books they want to, you know, to, to present to the press, to librarians. And you had mentioned that, you mentioned Chatskin, but also others have, have said that BEA is doomed. I mean, what do you think it is about BEA that people keep coming? I mean, for me, I, I, I still like to see you know, h- how the booths are set up. I'd like to meet people that I haven't spoken with in a while and, and to see the authors and to see the actual, in some cases, galleys there, books there. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember um, more than 25 years ago, I worked for a small press, and you know, we sent out books to bookstores we'd never seen. We used distributors we'd never met. Uh, we occasionally uh, received something from an agent we'd, we, we'd never would know. And um, we packed up all our stuff into a car and went from upstate New York to Washington, D.C. for the show, known as the ABA then. And it just opened my eyes to this, this, this vast kind of uh, industry that had many different sectors to it, the distributors, the booksellers, the sales reps, the editors – all of whom were interested in one thing, which was producing books and having fun doing it and 
you know, having some success. And so I remember when we went back to our little small press, we were just completely enlivened and mm. uh, we had a new commitment to oh, things. Sure. Um, the same, I think, is happening today, of course. Um, but even more so, uh, there's an energy that's coming from uh, the fact that publishing is now something that more and more people have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, it is something that you can do on your own. Um, you can avail yourselves of this this kind of infrastructure that is out there. I mean, you can self-publish a book and get it into a library, into a bookstore, mm-hmm. sell it electronically. Um, you can pay some money and get an editor to look at it, or right. you can have uh, public relations help or marketing help or design help. And so publishing, by kind of breaking down a lot of barriers, which is the digital revolution has allowed, has broadened itself. And I think as a result, um, more and more publishers and authors um, see this as a really important place to be. Um, it gets a lot of attention from a lot of different uh, quarters. Mm-hmm. So at this show, there will be, you know, Chris Matthews will be there and Chelsea Handler oh, and right. Scott Turow mm-hmm. and Colin McCann and Alice McDermott and many, many uh, people who have been working for, in some cases, for years on books are coming here first, yeah. you know, last weekend in, in May to talk to whoever will talk to them uh, right. about their book. And uh, they are also doing a lot of signings, um, a lot of book giveaways, a lot of galley giveaways, mm-hmm. a lot of raffles. Um, it's, it's quite an exciting event, I think. Um, so we're, just, we're all hoping that uh, we have great weather and uh, right. the turnout <laughs> uh, remains very good. Sure. Great weather for being stuck in the Javits Center. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> walk, walk us around the show a little bit. What's it, what's it like? Well, the Javits is, a, uh, in a way, a, a maligned building in some sense, but I always find it uh, quite a, a lovely place to be once I get there. It's a, all glass facade, so if it's a beautiful blue summer day in New York City, uh, you're surrounded by blue. Mm. And uh, walking through the registration areas and going to the various levels that lead to meeting rooms and then into exhi- huge Cavernous exhibition halls, um, you get to, to feel you're really in New York City in some way. Uh, there's the Hudson River to the west, and there's a busy 11th Avenue to the east, and the High Line, which is the big um, sort of attraction for people walking through New York City these days, is, is right nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Once you get into the exhibit halls, it's uh, a bit of a carnival. Um, there are booths, booth after booth after booth with all kinds of big signage and um, carpeting in the aisles and editors and publishers and authors and booksellers walking around with their badges and their bags full of galleys and right. all kinds of giveaways. <laughs> right. um, that who wouldn't want to be anywhere else than here? Um, and, and quite a contrast to maybe 10 years ago when uh, publishers were really questioning the, the value of you know, spending all this money to right. be I at that. BEA when there was very little order writing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a schmooze fest. Um, but, I, but I think what has won out is that the kind of uh, the strength and the fraternity or the sorority uh, that is established whenever uh, a like-minded group of people in an industry get together uh, really uh, kind of confirms the, uh, the value of, of being at such a place. There's also um, uh, big... Uh, conference areas and uh, sort of banquet halls where there'll mm-hmm. be uh, very entertaining um, breakfasts each morning uh, featuring three or four authors talking about their lives and what brought them to write their particular right. book. The halls are packed with um, booksellers and others having a, a, a fairly decent breakfast <laughs> and uh, being roundly entertained. They're just uh, thrilling events and uh, this year, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, sort of legendary uh, Congressman John Lewis, mm. who's going to be there on, on Saturday, and oh. has a graphic right. novel uh, in three volumes uh, telling the story, I believe, of kind of the Am- African-American experience um, uh, in the last two centuries. Wow. No, it, for one of the very few times in my life, you're making me wish I was a morning person. Well, I would I'd encourage you to get up, Rose. Um, <laughs> it's 8 a.m. Uh, the coffee's good and the bagels are, uh, although John Stewart one year when he was emceeing kind of ridiculed it as a bagel bucket. A little <laughs> bucket with 
the bagels in it. But that particular breakfast is going to be uh, emceed by Chris Matthews. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Um, who can certainly host a show. Sure. I'm sure he <laughs> yes, exactly. Host a breakfast. <laughs> right. Um, and he has a book coming out about the relationship between Ronald Reagan and uh, Tip O'Neill, mm. the longtime mm-hmm. um, right. Massachusetts congressman, and how they were on the opposite sides of the aisle always. But after six, they were the best of friends, and I think Matthews longed for a day that uh, people could work across the aisle and sees that as not happening now. So that's right. bound to be sort of a stirring presentation. Sure. Yeah. Undoubtedly. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey about Book Expo America, or BEA as we know it if we're on first-name terms. And uh, I've noticed a change in the the programming, the events over the last few years at BEA. Uh, There used to be, you know, the occasional panel about genre fiction uh, or sort of more, I I would say something more commercial like that. And now I feel like it's all digital this, digital that. Um, A lot of, as you said, self-publishing stuff, but really mostly aimed at publishers who are maybe struggling a little bit still with the the digital revolution. Is Is that your sense of it, too? I think there is a very strong uh, component in the educational panels having to do with digital. Mm-hmm. Um, after all, it is the area of um, the publishing business that is changing most rapidly. Um, you could go to the same titled panel this year as last year, and it would right. be uh, a lot of different information. Um, in addition, there is a whole two-day panel or conference that's connected to the show that's all digital. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, that promises to have one of the more uh, interesting uh, talks, actually, where um, Malcolm Gladwell is going to speak about the future of digital publishing as he sees it. So I imagine Gladwell will have you know, somehow captured this, this whole fast-changing thing in a really pithy and memorable way. Um, I, I think that um, there are still you know, quite a few special interest editorial-angled um, panels, mm-hmm. um, but not nearly as many as there used to be, I would say, pr- proportionally. I think you're right, Rose. But it merely reflects really how the industry has changed and how um, knowing how to publish is now a lot more than uh, having a certain taste and being able to edit and raise a little money to put the book out. Um, you have to understand social media. You have to understand you know, where to get the best printing if you're going to get printing. Um, and certainly have to keep up with all the different platforms in which you can deliver. Right. And the consumer wants you to be able to deliver your content. And you've been name-checking a lot of the folks who are going to be there, and Chris Matthews and Malcolm Gladwell. And, um, I, you said about 2,000 consumers, which is to say readers, book buyers, um, are uh, people who, who just really love to read are going to be at the show on the last day. How did those 2,000 people end up being the ones with the, with the golden tickets? <laughs> well, they had to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe last year, which is the first year that they opened the show up to consumers, uh, they distributed something like a thousand tickets to um, certain bookstores that thought they had their their preferred clientele would want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, those tickets were free, as I understand it, as I recall. This year, it's I believe forty nine ninety five to buy a ticket to go into the show. You get a lot for your money. Yeah. Um, you get a whole bag of free galleys. You get um, uh, to the front of the line for signed copies from many authors. Um, you get preferred seating, I believe, at certain um, panels and stage events. Neil Gaiman is doing a huge thing on Saturday. That uh, And Neil, I think, is probably pushing four different titles wow. of his <laughs> at the show. A he, couple yes. of adult, He's a busy guy. Yeah. A couple of adult titles, uh, uh, one of which he says is... You know, the the adult title he's the proudest of, mm-hmm. and a couple of children's books. Anyway, they were just going to have him on a r- normal stage for a normal author mm-hmm. until recently, and they opened it up to a whole other room that's going to seat two or three hundred people. Wow! Um, so, the, and the uh, the consumers will be able to go by virtue of having gotten in there to uh, a big kiosk, I believe, run by Ingram, mm-hmm. where they can actually buy all the books they want. So um, I think that will be a spectacular day, and uh, I think it will be quite fun, uh, make for a quite 
fun Saturday night in New York City <laughs> uh, with, uh, with a certain part of Manhattan being uh, overrun by happy, happy book readers. <laughs> happy readers. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Co. Editorial Director Michael Coffey about Book Expo America. And, Michael, what, for you, what, what's outstanding for this one? What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing the mood of the industry as you can get it in, in such a big mm. event. Uh, right. There are lots of simmering uh, issues. Um, lots of competition has been going on between various sectors. I think just today uh, Penguin agreed to pay a $75 million fine mm-hmm. uh, in the pricing right. scandal or issue that the Justice Department brought. Um, that's a big chunk of money. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, I think what, what, I'm, what I gather may be the overall mood is that um, Mike Shatskin's prediction notwithstanding, the publishing industry has really adjusted to the ebook revolution. Um, every publisher, small, university press, mid-sized, large press, does ebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, they've worked it into their business model. They have learned how to uh, simultaneously publish hardcover, print, and ebooks. Um, consumers are finding those books in both formats. Um, some prefer one, some prefer the other, most prefer both. Mm-hmm. Um, n- n- nothing knocked anything out. So uh, I, I'd like to see, I, I'd be most pleased to, to come out of the, the BEA uh, next Saturday uh, and feel that, um, indeed, my sense that we have come through mm. is confirmed and that my colleagues feel the same thing. Oh, wonderful. Well, we've been talking with PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey. Michael, thank you so much for that preview of BEA. Thanks for uh, leaving the helm of the uh, ship that is PW for, uh, for 15, 20 minutes with us. Thank you, and I'll see you in the show daily press room. Oh, yeah, we'll be there. Javits. We'll be there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.